0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Um, There has been a question uh, that Christians have always had to struggle with. From the very first century, when Christianity, um, as a following of Jesus, started to emerge in the world all the way up until today. And the question is this, how do certain parts of the Bible relate to you and I? How do certain things that God has said or that God has done, how does that apply to our lives? And the answer is not always so clear. Um, For you and I as 21st century Americans, how certain things God said to um, Israelites thousands of years ago um, applies to our life. It's not always clear why we choose certain things and don't choose other things. Um, One of the, the issues that we get into sometimes when we're reading the Bible, when we're thinking about what God has done and said to certain people is, on one hand, perhaps some of us tend to just assume that everything applies to us. Um, And so, everything that was written, everything that was ever said, every experience that ever happened has kind of a one on one direct correlation to who we are uh, today. Um, And it is evident in many cases that's just not quite the way it works. Um, We'll see this morning in our text um, that the Apostle Paul is saying, No, these things were written for a certain group of people at a certain time, are not to be applied, are not to be adhered to right now. Um, Sometimes we just apply everything ourselves and we are allowed to do so because we ignore context. Um, so we just take one verse or one statement or one story out of the narrative. Um, and then as just an eternal timeless truth, we place it on our chest and take ownership of it. Um, one of my favorite ways that we do this, as I speak at a lot of youth camps, um, every youth group inevitably will have some graphic tees printed up, look and fly, and they'll put a verse from Habakkuk on the graphic tee that says, behold, I'll do something in your generation which you don't have the capacity to understand, which you can't even imagine. And it's very inspirational. Y'all are going to change the world, you guys, when y'all grow up. The problem is the very next verse defines what that action is. And it's that God's going to kill everybody. Um, He's speaking to a group of people that have been rebellious to him. And he says, you can't even imagine what I'm about to do to your generation. Like slaughter all of you. And for some reason, the youth groups never print that second verse. <laughs> Just doesn't seem like they want to import that um, into, into their group's meaning there. Um, on the other hand, Christians have this sometimes very negative ability to kind of pick and choose based on what they feel they might like to apply to themselves. Um, there's a, a journalist, A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a book years ago that I like. It's called The Year of Living Biblically. He's an immersion journalist, so he'll do something for a long period of time, and then kind of report on the experience. He was not a Christian, he's an agnostic, and so he's kind of reporting from the outside in. And what he did was he went through um, with biblical scholars and he mapped out every single imperative in the Bible, every command God's ever given to anyone at any time in the Bible. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. There's a lot of things in there. And he did his very best for a year to do all of them perfectly to a T. And it gets him into some kind of, um, you know, comical situations. So uh, laws that we have no problem, right? We would never even think for most of us, yeah, we should probably try to start doing that today, um, are very clearly commanded to God's people at certain times in history. One is um, you're not allowed to, um, at certain points of the Old Testament, Touch anything that a woman who has is menstruating has touched, um, and so it's because of some ritual purity impurity laws. Um, the problem is, you never quite know, do you? <laughs> I mean, unless you're going to interview people, unless you're going to have serious serious sanitary issues, and so what he the only way he can solve this problem in the modern era, right, where women don't go and get ritually, uh, um, ritually purified, right after after these things, is he buys a little stool, and that's all he can sit on. And he just carries that around everywhere. Um, and his wife is not particularly fond of this particular commandment that he's following. She finds it kind of offensive. And so as a way to like get back at him, she eventually starts to just sit on everything in their house. And for a couple of weeks, he has to sleep on this stool, right? Um, and uh, you know, he comes out of the experience, much more respectful of religion in general, um, much more understanding of the kind of a person that um, focusing on some of these rules can make someone. Um, but with the observation that Christians as a whole grab and choose as they like. He calls it kind of cafeteria application. Um, we go to the, the buffet and we pick what we think would work for us or we think should work for us, and we just run with that. Um, and he never gets into exploring the reasons why people might do that. Perhaps there are good reasons why we apply certain things to our lives and don't apply other things to our lives. Um, but certainly, I think we can all relate to this. That there are and people disagree on what should apply to our lives. I happen to have a tattoo or two, maybe more. Um, and there are verses in the Old Testament that read very plainly would say that I shouldn't have tattoos. This is an evil thing to do. And unfortunately, I got the tattoos after I was a Christian. So I can't use that excuse. Like, look, this is a bad person. Got some ink. Now I follow Jesus, so I won't do that anymore. I mean, I got the tattoos when I was a pastor, which means I was aware of these verses. I studied these verses, and I thought for various reasons, they don't mean what it looks like on surface level it means. It doesn't mean to me, to us in this time period, what on surface value it might look like it should mean to us and in this time period. We're in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Galatians. And we're going to continue on in that this morning. And Paul is going to address, the Apostle Paul writes Galatians, inspired by the Spirit. He's going to address this issue, but not for a topic that maybe you and I are always so eager to talk about. So we might be more interested in the tattoo discussion. Or in other things about why that should or shouldn't apply to our lives. But the issue in Galatians, if you remember, as we've been going through the book, is the question of whether Gentiles, people who are not Jewish people in the first century, whether they have to become Jewish to follow Christ. Jesus was a Jewish man, he's the Jewish Messiah. He fulfills the promises God made to the Jewish people. Um, and Paul teaches what some have characterized as a law free gospel. Not in that he doesn't care about what you do or the kind of person that you are, but in that you don't have to adhere to certain works of the law. By law, he means the law of Moses. If you are familiar with the Old Testament story, Moses goes up on a mountain, and the people of Israel are given these rules to live by, um, these expectations that are placed on their lives. And the big ones that Paul's addressing in Galatians seem to be circumcision, some dietary laws, which you can or can't eat, and then. Uh, observance of holy days, um, observance of certain calendars. Um, And he's going to make the argument throughout Galatians very, very confidently, very boldly, that Gentiles do not have to do these things to find acceptance, to remain accepted, to have the seal of approval by God, that as Gentiles, without adhering to the law of Moses, they have full inclusion into the people of God. And he is then going to have to face this question of what do we do with the law then? What was the law there for? What was the purpose of the law? How does it relate to the people of Israel and to what's happened now in Christ? And so this is what our text this morning addresses. If you have a Bible or can grab one in front of you, um, underneath a seat in front of you, we'll be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. We're just going to go through four verses this morning. And Paul's going to be addressing in these verses the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the um, law given at Sinai. And I know at least half of you probably woke up this morning and you're like, there's nothing I would rather do than explore the historical and theological relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and that given to us through the laws on Sinai. Um, We're reminded this morning, uh, in particular, a couple things. One is that the Bible is not always seemingly interesting to us. Can we be honest? This is a place where we're going to be honest. If not, I'm going to feel very lonely up here. There's probably not going to be, for you and I this morning, a clear take away life change transformation, like go and do likewise, like this is how you solve your life problems. This is one of those passages where we're just going to learn more about God and what God has done in the world. Um, and I think it's important for us. One of the reasons we just go through books like this is so we can't skip passages like this and just focus on things that we think meet our felt needs. We want to build a deeper faith. We want to dig in a little deeper, even if that means look, what we're doing this morning, wading through some thicker text. Uh, I do want us to, to keep our mind on the prize, though, even in the book of Galatians here. We're in chapter 3. We're in the quicksand of Galatians. Okay, He is really getting down to the nitty-gritty um, on stuff that you and I probably would never ask the question about if we weren't reading this, this text. Um, but Galatians is building up to a certain point. It has a conclusion, and we're not studying it because all of it is just theologically um, obscure. We're we're studying it because there's a big payoff in Galatians. When you get to the end of chapter 4, when you get to chapter 5, when you get to chapter 6, you have some of the most moving and transformational language that's ever been written for Christians. about the freedom we have in Christ, about what it means to walk in the Spirit, about the kind of person the Spirit produces as we walk in Christ. But you don't get there without following this carefully constructed argument. And so we keep our seat on this morning as we keep approaching for Paul this, this check being cashed. Um, our passage this morning is going to explore the relationship between the promise God made to Abraham and the law he gave through Moses. Um, and it's going to be on one level fairly simple. Uh, I think most of us will be able to understand the primary point Paul's getting at. On another level, all of the little details on this passage are fiercely debated by everybody. Um, One commentator put together the different options, and he counted up at least 430 different interpretations from just these four verses. Um, And he acknowledged there's probably going to be more by the time you read this book, by the time it's published. I can concur and tell you that there are a lot of different interpretations of these verses. Um, We're going to try our best not to get bogged down in those. I'll kind of explain over the course of it how I approach the text, um, but they really don't, to a big degree, change the primary overall meaning here. Um, So let's read together um, Galatians 3 verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers. Notice here, we'll stop after just a few verses, a few words. Um, Paul is now going to make an argument by analogy. He's going to appeal to something everybody can relate to. And notice what he calls them here. He calls them brothers, brothers and sisters, family members. This is a much different tone, if you remember, from how he started the chapter. Galatians 3.1, he says, you foolish Galatians. Galatians was probably used in the first century as an insult. They were known for not being the brightest, most civilized people. And so he's gone a long way now from you foolish Galatians to kind of shifting in the rhetoric here. He's saying, look, we have a relationship. You know that I love you. I know that you love me. You've taken care of me. I want to give you an example. I want, to, I want to bring you back on the team here. Let me help explain this to you. Um, so he gives a human example. You know, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, we don't use this word covenant a whole lot. It's a biblical theological word. Um, but in the ancient world, um, this word covenant, the Greek word, would have been used in um, non-religious settings just to describe a person's will. Or testament, We would today call it our last will and testament. Um, it's where you divvy up that which is yours into whoever's going to receive um, the property or the wealth, get that inheritance. Um, some of us in the room might have a last will and testament. And so this is a situation we can relate to. Paul is going to use this as an analogy to compare the promise to the law. Um, Lindsay and I, my wife and I, we have a last will and testament. It very clearly divvies up all the debt we have to what family members get to pay off certain bills or not. Um, You might have one because there's that one kid you really love, and then the other kids who never quite met your expectations. And so you want to be very clear, right? This is the point of a a last will and testament, correct? And so there's no confusion after you die. So no one gets to come in and add or twist or change the things that you said you wanted to have happen. Imagine if you got called in to a lawyer's office before a judge. You're mentioned in the last will and testament. Maybe it's when your family's passed away. And the judge's lawyer's reading off the conditions, the stipulations in this will. And he says, you know, you get so-and-so and you get so-and-so and you're responsible for this or that. And he says, and I'll let you get all of that if you do this for the following five years. And if you're this type of person for the following three years, and if you do this for me for the next two years, what would your action be? Probably the lawyer up. Right? That's not how wills work. You don't get, a second party doesn't get to come in and change things here. You don't get to add something to it later. Then he says, we're going to use this analogy to understand what God has said and done with Abraham and then with Moses. Now, in verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, quote, and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, verse 16, I don't think in our English translations does us any favors um, by translating the word in Greek, which is sperma, as offspring. Um, Offspring, you and I don't usually distinguish between the singular and the plural. Uh, We don't usually make a big difference between offspring and offsprings. Um, We Understand, offspring can be a collective singular, right? It's grammatically a singular word, but it can refer to a large group of people. Um, perhaps more precisely, um, what Paul's getting at and makes it a little bit more clear is he's making a distinction between the text he quotes here from Genesis between one seed and many seeds. And he says, This promise was never given to many seeds, even though it might appear that way. It was given to one seed. And we'll come back to this. He says, That seed was Christ. This is what I mean as he explains it further. The law from Moses at Mount Sinai, which came 430 years afterwards, is not a null, a covenant, or promise previously ratified by God so as to make that promise void. For if the inheritance from that promise, from that covenant, comes by the law, it is no longer coming from a promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Now, just to kind of get us all on the same page here, okay, Um, let's go back in the story of Israel and set this up very quickly. Um, After God creates all things, the world kind of spirals out of control, and everything's kind of a mess from Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis 12, the biblical narrative changes, and we zoom in out from the whole world going out of control into God and his relationship with one person. And for the rest of the Bible, we're following that relationship with that person and then his people. And that man is Abraham. This happens in Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham and makes him a promise or a covenant. And he says, I will bless you. I'll make you the father of many nations. And I will bless all nations through you. Not just your people, all people. Not just Jews, Gentiles as well. Now, as Abraham and his descendants grew in number They eventually did become a nation. And after being slaves in Egypt, were brought out of slavery, delivered in the Exodus, and were given a law, the law of Moses. And the law stipulated ways that they should live, the expectations that God had on their lives. Many of these expectations that we would say don't apply to us today. Although we might not, again, always be able to articulate why. Paul here is going after this why question. Why not works of law like circumcision? Why not works of law like dietary laws? Why not calendar observance? And he notes the temporal separation between these two events. God gives Abraham a promise very early on in history. And then hundreds of years later, he, he nails down a number here, 430, probably referencing a text in Exodus, gives a law. And his his point is to try to separate these two things out for you so we can analyze them each individually. Um, Jewish tradition, what most likely the teachers in Galatia were teaching the people in Galatia, is that the law was simply an outworking of the promise to Abraham. The law kind of just set the parameters of what it meant to be a child of this promise, of how these children were supposed to live and supposed to act. And so they were kind of connected in in an individual, holistic way. Um, Paul is trying to point out these are two very separate things in history. And he says one is a promise, and one's more like an agreement. One comes later. And he says, let's go back to this will analogy, right? You can't make a will and then have another party come in afterwards and start to change the conditions. You can't go from a promise or a more one-sided covenant to an if-then type situation, which is what the law of Moses was. If you do this, then God will bless you. If you don't do these things, then God will curse you. If you go back to Genesis and you look at how God talks to Abraham, at the very beginning, one of the big things you notice is that's very egocentric on God's part. God comes to Abraham and he doesn't really focus too much on what Abraham is about to do or needs to do or what requirements Abraham needs to fulfill. He says, you... I'm blessing you and I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless all the nations through you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. It's a whole lot of I statements. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing this. The sense you get from it is God's committed to this plan. No matter what happens, no matter what Abraham might or might not do. If you know the story, Abraham does some not so smart things. He lies about his wife being his sister. which is not smart on multiple levels, I'm told. <laughs> they sometimes doubt God's promises later on. Abraham's people, the Israelites, certainly make their share of mistakes like we all do. But all the way back from Genesis, they believe God's not going to abandon this plan. Come, come hell or high water, this is how God has said he'll bring blessing to the world. This is how he'll bring his redemption and his salvation. You get this even clearer in Genesis 15, uh, just a few chapters after God makes his initial contact with Abram at the time, Abraham later. um, God cuts the covenant. He makes it official. Um, You probably have used this this phrase, cut a deal. Let's cut a deal. Um, The etymology of this phrase, where it comes from, is covenants that were made in the ancient Near Eastern world um, because to make a covenant, to ratify a covenant, you would actually cut up Animals. You'd offer these sacrifices. And so you get a picture of this in Genesis 15. What you do is you'd take whatever the the sacrifices were um, for that situation and you would cut them in half and you'd form kind of like an aisle. Um, And you and the partner you're entering this, this covenant into with would walk between these animals. And what you're doing in a sense by doing this is you're inferring on yourself the fate of these animals if either one of you breaks the stipulations of the covenant, these promises that you've made to one another. Now, here's what's interesting. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, we're going to do this. Make it official. Let's sign the paperwork. I need you to get some some animals. I need you to prepare them a certain way. And once it's all set up, perfectly ready to go for Abraham and God to walk through, God puts Abraham in a deep sleep. This is God going out of his way to, like, give you a big wink. You'd be like, this has nothing to do with Abraham. I'm making this covenant. In fact, I'm making this covenant from both ends. I'm going to fulfill this covenant from both ends. And so Abraham, dead asleep on the floor, or waking up from this dead sleep, just kind of watching what's happening, sees God by himself go through these animals. He makes a promise to himself, by himself. Some people see this as a kind of a unilateral way. Again, like the emphasis is on God's commitment, on his ability and desire to work through Abraham to bring this blessing. And then you come hundreds of years later to the law. The law is given to the people of Israel, and it becomes for them a way for them to keep themselves in this covenant, to live faithfully by this promise God has given to them, to identify themselves as people in the covenant. Circumcision, dietary laws they often function as like these boundary markers, these badge of identities? How do we know who's in the covenant? What's well, those who have this mark on their flesh. It's those who eat like this, who live according to these days, according to these different situations. But Paul says a couple of interesting things here. He says, just like in the last will and testament, something afterwards can't change the conditions originally. This is what's at work when it comes to the promise given to Abraham and the law given to the people of Israel through Moses, and then he gets even more specific. That point is pretty clear and pretty easily made by the Apostle Paul. Here, he he then goes and talks about who the promise was made to. And this is where he starts to get clever and starts to go a little bit more in depth with his interpretation. Um, verse sixteen, he says these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or seed. It does not say, quote, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, quote, and to your seed, which is Christ. Now, he's quoting here from a text in Genesis. Scholars debate which text he's quoting from. Um, there's a handful that he could be quoting from. Statements like this are made a couple times in the book of Genesis. Most likely, it's probably coming from Genesis 17, verse 8. And in the Genesis text, Paul is correct. The word used in Hebrew and in the Greek translation of the Hebrew is singular. He's incorrect in that this is how any Jew otherwise would have read this text. Because their tradition read it like we would normally read it. In fact, if you didn't know that Paul interpreted this way, and I had you open up to Genesis, and we went through and read it, and we're like, what does this mean? We would probably not be like, this is talking about Jesus. We would probably say, it's a collective singular He's making a promise to Abraham and then to all of Abraham's descendants. But Paul is going to make this semantic argument. He's going to look back. Now, some accuse Paul sometimes of playing fast and loose with Scripture. He sometimes interprets things in ways that seem clearly to come from some kind of revelation or some kind of um, spirit-led place of authority. Um, In fact, I go back to university this week, teaching some Bible and theology classes. If a student sometimes turn in a paper to me, translating Old Testament verses the way Paul does, I might not always give him a good grade because I have different standards as a modern person. I'm like, that's not what the text says. That's not the, what they would have meant in the original standard. Paul, so here's the thing. Paul does things that are okay for Paul that sometimes I wouldn't be as comfortable with doing myself. Does that make sense? That's okay to me. Paul's an apostle. <laughs> Paul met with the resurrected Christ. And receive the gospel straight from him. I'm okay accepting these conclusions from Paul. Paul says many interesting things about Scripture. Earlier in chapter 3, he says when Scripture um, records God's interactions with Abraham, it itself was foreseeing what God would do in Christ, as if Scripture is a living thing. And it was pre preaching the gospel to Abraham, even though Abraham didn't know this. Even until no one would have ever recognized in that text anything about Jesus until Jesus came. Paul's able to look back and say, no, God had planted seeds in there. Yeah, they're not obvious. Yeah, we might not have ever found them without Jesus. But now because of Christ and because of the Spirit, we can look back and pull out very interesting things that lead us back to the cross and lead us back to the resurrection. So Paul's going to say this. He's going to say the promise to Abraham, the promise of blessing, and then the promise to bless others through himself was only ever given to two individuals. It was not given to the nation of Israel as a whole. This would have been controversial of Paul to say. You can imagine, though, Paul's already been talking about Abraham. That The Galatian teachers would have said something like this, which is what Paul's responding to right now. Okay, we agree with you. Abraham was counted righteous early on in Genesis before he'd done anything else. But keep reading. Abraham was eventually asked to be circumcised. Eventually, Abraham's people get the law of Moses and are told to adhere to these laws. And so if you want to be an inheritant of the promise to Abraham, you need to come into this people group. God's shown us how you come into this people group. It's by adhering to these works of law. Paul has to respond by separating these things out. The Galatian teachers, Paul, they are saying to the Gentiles, all we're asking these Gentile Christians to do is what God's people have already been through. Sure, They received the promise with faith. And now, just like the Israelites, they're being given more details, more specifics, how one lives out a life that's found in this promise. And Paul's separating these things out. And Paul says, this promise being singular was only ever given to Abraham and one other person, which is Jesus. This is a very remarkable thing to say. Um, this is something that, if you're a biblical scholar, makes you want to start thinking about other verses and how other verses in the Bible talk about the law, how Paul talks about it in other places. Paul seems to be saying, just in this passage by itself, that there's this parenthesis in history, that nothing really directly is happening about this promise from the time of Abraham until Jesus. And the law of Moses becomes this kind of interim space. But that, that doesn't contribute any direct way to the fulfillment of God's promises. And so he he says this, the the promise is given to Abraham and then to his seed, which is Christ. And he does this so that he can come to his conclusion, Gentile Christians, people who are not Jewish, they don't need to adhere to the works of law to inherit the promises of Abraham. All they need to do is participate with Christ. All they need to do is to be found in unity with Jesus to be baptized into Christ. In so doing, Christ, the person who has promised this blessing, who gets this inheritance, is able to pass it on to his people. If you look at his conclusion in chapter three, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, and at the end of chapter three, verse, um, we'll start in verse 25. He says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the payoff. You see what he's getting at in this passage we've read. And if you are Christ, not if you're Moses, not if you adhere to these works of the law, if you have been baptized, if you wear Christ-like clothing. That's to put on Christ. That's the language he used here. If you are found in Christ and with Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to the promise. You are the recipients of God's blessing and redemption and salvation. This passage at the end of Galatians 3 is one of these high-sailing passages. This actually is history transforming, that paragraph we read where Paul comes to these conclusions. There's no Jew or Greek in Christ. There's no male and female. There's no slave and free. All are one in Christ. This is the type of language that breaks down institutions of slavery, which are not easily broken down. This is the type of language that breaks down racial barriers that are not easily broken down. It's the type of fighting language that breaks down gender barriers that are not always easily broken down. And for Paul the point of it all comes back to who are the children of Abraham? Who get his promise? Who get his commitment to bring blessing and life? It's Christ and those who are found in Christ. So his conclusion to the Gentile Christians is that they don't have to adhere to these works of the law. That's not the way in to Abraham's family for them the way in for Jews and Gentiles is Christ. Because if it's not Christ, if it's not by promise, then something has happened that can't happen. A will has been altered with later on. Now this begs the question, why the law? Why was the law ever given? What role or purpose does it ever serve? And Paul will answer that next week. In verse 19, he asks this question, why then the law? And he'll give an answer that, perhaps like our verse of the day, is kind of confusing, maybe surprising to us, something maybe we would never have said off the cuff. We'll talk about how the law imprisons people. We'll talk about the law as a, a prison guard or a guardian or a custodian or a tutor. But this morning, as we wrap up our time in the Scriptures together, and as we come to the table to worship, participating in the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper, we come holding on to this truth. The reason we're accepted at this table, the reason you and I can claim, despite everything else, no matter what we might be feeling or thinking or experiencing, that God's commitment to Abraham, his commitment to Christ, is the same commitment that he has to us. It's because in Christ we're found to be Abraham's offspring. In Christ, the one who receives the inheritance of God Almighty shares it with his people. And you and I, as unlikely as that might be, through Christ and Christ alone, we're able to find our family, we're able to claim our true identity, and are able to place our ultimate hope and the inheritance that is ours through Christ. Life and life eternal, forgiveness, reconciliation with God and with one another, a spirit-filled life of transformation, an eternal life of resurrection, all of this and, and more belongs to you and I because of the work that Christ has done and because of our participation in that work. So, our response to Christ, our inclusion in the person and work of Christ. And so, as we come to the table and rehearse these truths, we come acknowledging that just as Paul talks about putting on Christ, so Christ is in us. So, we participate in Christ. We come to the table to remember that not only did Jesus do something, but that something comes inside of us. We eat it and we drink it, it becomes a part of us. There's this spiritual, mystical union that happens where we are now in Christ, together as one people, as one body. And so we come to worship, to celebrate, to claim hold to that promise and this truth, to sustain us in the good days and the bad days, and to guide us as we seek to follow Christ in and through our lives.